Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello and thank you for joining us on the podcast we affectionately call Space Nuts. And my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host. And with me as always is astronomer Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. <clears throat> I wasn't aware that we were affectionate towards it. <laughs> well, we are this week. Okay. <laughs> that might change. <laughs> uh, it might change like the space weather. We're going to talk yeah, about absolutely. something that's popped up on their website uh, in regard to a, uh, a sunspot. They, they actually do publish a lot of information about uh, sunspots on a regular basis uh, because the sun has such a, a big impact on the weather around us and the weather in our solar system. Uh, but this one's interesting. It's a reverse polarity sunspot. So we'll talk about that because that's, um, that's a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, another thing that's a little bit weird is uh, water vapour from a protostar in the Cat's Paw Nebula. Um, it, nothing to do with Mandu, but... Um, <laughs> Who's yeah. asleep on the lounge at the moment? He's, as a, he's asleep every time we talk about him. Yeah, he's... he's a. He he's, does sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you know, that's what cats are good at. And uh, a question from Aziz in Uganda who uh, has brought up a topic we have discussed before, but it's a, it's a fascinating uh, subject simply because it is a big problem for longitudinal space travel, and that is the effects of microgravity and, uh, yeah, how, how we get around that. So we'll revisit that particular problem uh, but first of all, a reverse polarity sunspot. Um, please explain. <laughs> well, the first thing about this sunspot, it's really a sunspot group, as all sunspots are, um, and it's very big. Uh, and it's big, uh, that's a surprise, because we are at the moment uh, at what we, what we might call solar minimum, uh, which is the sort of minimum period of the sun's activity. Remember, the, the sun goes through this 11-year cycle mm -hmm. in fact it's actually a 22 year cycle uh for reasons that i will um, explain in a moment um but uh, this particular sunspot i think it appeared about a week ago a little bit more perhaps it's designated ar 2720 which is a nice number yes um <laughs> it's as good as any other um but yes it is not only large and it's certainly bigger than the earth um but it's odd in that exactly as you've said, it's a reversed polarity sunspot. And the bottom line here is that the sunspots which we see occur in pairs, usually one to the east of the other. So they're kind of horizontally in pairs. They're not vertically or, or in pairs along a line of lati uh, longitude, if I can okay. put it that oh, way. Yeah. Yeah. So they sit along a line of latitude. And actually their positions change throughout the solar cycle as well. The latitude of sunspots alters. But we're not talking about that at the moment. What we're talking about is the fact that when you've got a pair of sunspots like that, an easter, uh, you know, um, easterly and westerly ones, uh, they have... Um, basically their own 
magnetic fields which are different in the sunspots of the pair. Uh, how do we know about magnetic fields in sunspots? I hear you ask. I, I was just thinking that. You called a get a magnet, a big magnet, and stick it as near as you can to the sun, and see which end is attracted. No, you don't. There is a there's a technique there's a technique called um, Zeeman spectroscopy, uh, and what it is uh, is it, so we've talked about the spectrum before the, yeah. the the fact that if you take starlight or light from the sun, split it up into its uh, component rainbow colours, we find that. Um, if you do it properly, there is this barcode of uh, actually usually dark lines imprinted on it. And those dark lines, are what we call absorption lines, they correspond to the light of a particular element in the atmosphere of the sun or the star being removed um, by that element. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex process, but they're called absorption lines because the element absorbs the light. And so you've got this imprint on the light of the sun, which otherwise would be a completely featureless rainbow spectrum. Uh, it imprints this dark line on it, and it's, there are different patterns of dark lines for different elements. In fact, the sun spectrum is incredibly complicated mm. because it's got so many of these dark absorption lines on it. Um, that's a long way round of introducing this idea of Zeeman splitting, which is a phenomenon um, which was recorded by, I think he was Dutch actually, uh, Herrn Zeeman, Z-E-E-M-E-M-A-N, I beg your pardon, Z-E-E-M-A-N. I beg your pardon, Z-E-E-M-A-N. <laughs> depends, depends which part of the planet That's right. you're talking I was, to. I was talking to a colleague from the United States a couple of weeks ago who said, what's Z? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean Z? Yay, great stuff. Mm. Anyway, uh, yeah, Zeeman. So those, uh, the, the phenomenon is that if you pass the light through a magnetic field, it splits the absorption into two. Uh, they're very, very finely separated. You need extremely high precision equipment to see it, but you can tell from that what the polarity of the magnetic field is. And so um, that is how the scientists know that this, um, this basically this uh, set of sunspots, which has North Pole and South Pole ends of the magnetic field, they're actually backwards way round compared with what they ought to be. <laughs> do, they, now, do they know why? Not yet, but there's ah. a good hint coming up. So, um, uh, so you've got this, the, the pairs of sunspots which show opposite polarity. And, um, and now I can't remember which way around this is, but normally one is north leading, so north's coming first. But then, and so all your sunspots in one solar cycle would have north leading. But then when you go to the next solar cycle, the next dollop of 11 years, the polarity reverses and you get south leading. So by leading, I mean in terms of its rotation around the sun. Right. So um, what we're seeing here is one whose polarity corresponds not to the present solar cycle, but to the next one, the one, the one that's coming up. Okay. Um, and that's why I said that actually the solar cycle is 22 years because you've got 11 years with one direction of magnetism and then 11 years again with the other direction of magnetism. So altogether that gives you this 22-year cycle. So um, what's happened is we've got to the end of it. They're all numbered actually since they were first observed. Yeah. Now, the one that we are observing at the moment is so solar cycle 24. 
if you multiply that by 11, it'll tell you how many years we've been observing them. It's rather a lot. Um, but it looks as though because these two, this sunspot pair has its polarity reversed, that this might be the first sunspot of solar cycle 25. In other words, it's the start of the build-up yes. to, to the next solar maximum because we've kind of gone through a solar minimum. Um, it does tend to happen that at the interface between one solar cycle and another, you will get this mixing up of the polarities. But it's a, it's a hint that we are either approaching or certainly very near the, the minimum of, of the solar activity. Mm. And slow transition from solar, 20, solar cycle 24 to solar cycle 25 seems to have started. So to, to use a very rudimentary uh, example, this is like a change of season for the sun. Yeah, yes, that's right. It is because um, you know it's not to do with um, illumination on the on the surface of the ground like our seasons are caused by here on Earth. Mm. But it is. It's exactly what it is. So the the eleven year cycle has been known for for many hundreds of years. But the um, you know the, the the fact that it's actually a twenty two year cycle, I think, probably only goes back a hundred years or so. Uh, and so it is a change in the season, exactly so. Okay, and and is there any impact on us uh, on, on um, this planet? Well, all, but all, always when you got when you've got big sunspots, uh, it tends to imply that there may be solar flares there, and of course, solar flares are what hurl. Um, you know, these, this wind of subatomic particles towards the Earth yeah. and give you things like the Aurora Borealis. And actually on that current space weather page, there is a beautiful photograph of what's called an auroral corona uh, taken from Alaska. Uh, if, uh, if people have a look at, um, uh, at the current edition of spaceweather.com uh, and I should just date stamp it because they change it every day. That's the 27th of August. Um, it's uh, the stunning picture of the aurora. So what that's telling us is that auroral activity is still relatively strong. Um, and this sunspot kind of underlines that. It means that the sun is, even though it's at solar minimum, it's still relatively active. It's not gone completely dormant mm. as uh, sometimes it does in the solar minimum. Actually, they're suggesting this geomagnetic storm was a bit of a surprise. Uh, yes, that's right, so because, that, because we're near solar minimum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so uh, there's some weird things happening on the sun. So it's probably appropriate that we're sending a new probe there to have a look, although it's not really going to be focused on these kinds of events. It's more interested in the corona. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's just a constant amazing, uh, a, a constant source of amazement is, is, uh, is our little star, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's sensational what we're learning about it. You know, compared with what we knew 100 years ago um, when I was a lad, it's, uh, it's blown us out of the water. We kind of vaguely understand now why these magnetic phenomena occur. There seems to be, a, a, you know, a lot of magnetic activity just beneath the, the visible surface of the sun, which, of course, is not a solid surface because it's a, it's a gas world. Mm, it is indeed. A star. So we may well be seeing a change of season on the sun and moving into its uh, 25th solar cycle. So there, uh, there may be some more to report on that. And uh, obviously from the questions we've been receiving on SpaceNet Thread, uh, it is certainly a source of interest for, uh, for a lot of people. So uh, no doubt we'll get to talk about it again. You're... I've just got a question, a question for you, Andrew, about oh, this. Uh-oh. Because since the solar cycle, <laughs> now I hope you can answer this, the solar cycle comes in two halves of 11 years each, does that mean that the whole thing is a solar bicycle? 
Oh, dear. With 22 <laughs> pedals. I don't know. You can edit that out if you want. No, I'll leave it there. It makes, you, makes me sound brighter than you for a change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's why they call us Space Nuts, I'm pretty sure. Uh, this is Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. This is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons, and there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing Uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, Now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, So protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about something that's uh, close to your heart, that is um, cats. Uh, (laughs) There's a place called the Cat's Paw Nebula, and astronomers have uh, discovered something a little unusual involving water vapour. What could they have found, I wonder? Um, I'm surprised because cats traditionally hate water hate water yes they do they don't like water at all especially mandu yeah the, yeah, the the space nuts cats cat uh, i'm sure he'd be interested to uh to know about this story being the cat's paw story if he could be bothered to wake up <laughs> um so the cat's paw nebula it's worth hunting out photographs for it uh, sorry photographs of it uh, because it of course it's a nebula so it means it's a cloud of glowing gas in space um, mostly hydrogen but with other things in it as well but if you google it and have a look for the photographs you will see that it is exactly the shape of a cat's paw exactly what it looks like it's a cat's paw um just just from the underneath it is spectacular with with no visible signs of claws Um, it also has as you might expect a fancy name which is ngc 6334i Right. Um, yep, that's the Cat's Paw Nebula, and it's a known 
um, source of molecules. So there, there, are, there are molecules um, in that nebula. Now, this is not unusual. Um, there are things called giant molecular clouds, and this is probably one of them, actually, mm -hmm. uh, which are giant, they're very big, and they, they're clouds, and they contain molecules. We tell it like it is in astronomy. Yeah, sure um, do. We think that's where, you know, star formation is taking place in these clouds. We've all seen lots of pictures of them on the uh, on the web, even though they might not be called that. Um, and uh, they are of great interest to astronomers who observe the sky at millimeter wavelengths. And that's radio waves with a wavelength of a millimeter or shorter millimeter and submillimeter um, wavelengths. And of course, the probably the most able telescope in the world in that re, uh, that uh, wavelength regime is ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, up at 5,000 meters there in the northern Atacama Desert. And it's operated, owned and operated by the European Southern Observatory, um, which you will remember we in Australia are now affiliated to uh, by means of a strategic partnership. Mm -hmm. So one of the astronomers at the, at the ESO, the European Southern Observatory, Geoffrey Blake, he has uh, observed the cat's paw with ALMA and has found uh, that there are jets of water streaming away from the protostar, that's a, a star in formation um, in deep in the cat's paw nebula. So this star uh, is uh, actually sending northern, northern and southern polar jets of material, which is what happens with protostars. That's what they do. Um, and it's a similar process to what happens with black holes. Um, Andrew, you'll remember that black holes, uh, very energetic black holes, send water, so, sorry, send streams of material actually at relativistic velocities, that means very near the speed of light from their north and south poles. And, and those streams, as with the streams from a much more modest object, this protostar at the middle of the cat's paw nebula, they're really focused by magnetic fields. Once again, magnetism is the, is the name of the game uh, in today's uh, issue of Space Nuts. Yes. Um, the, the difference, though, here is that with this protostar in the middle of the cat's paw nebula, what we're seeing is jets of not wet water, of course, it's water vapor. Um, water is not really a surprise. We know that water is the most common two-element molecule in the entire universe. <clears throat> and so um, it's no surprise to find it there. What surprised me a little bit, though, is that it is actually heavy water. Mm. And heavy water is... Um, made not from the normal isotope of hydrogen, but something called heavy hydrogen or deuterium. Uh, so deuterium is is actually something that's also relatively common throughout the universe. Uh, well, all right, if it's common, um, if by common I mean 26 deuterium atoms for every million hydrogen atoms, it's common. Um, so it's much less than hydrogen, but it is there and it's pretty well everywhere because it was a byproduct of the Big Bang. The Big Bang actually produced de deuterium. Um, so this uh, this um, particular uh, stream of water vapor in the cat's paw nebula is rich in heavy water. That's interesting because there are all sorts of links here with comets, which um, I'm not sure, I haven't actually had a chance to read the original paper, which is published in the Astrophysical Journal of Letters. So I don't know whether these observations make the link with comets, but comets are known to have um, rather more heavy water than the oceans 
of the earth does and or do and that's why we are now in some doubt as to whether the oceans of the world actually were filled by water from impacting comets ah, years ago that is so fascinating the, yeah the amount of deuterium is is different from what we find in in oceans um having said that the only comets that we've sampled well enough to know how much deuterium there is uh, are measured, you know, on, on that. You can count them on the fingers of one hand. I think it's about four. Mm. Uh, and I think some of them show normal water as well as heavy water. So it's very, it's a very indistinct uh, uh, conclusion to draw. It's certainly drawing a long bow. But it is interesting to me that there's heavy water in this in this nebula, the cat's paw. Yeah. Uh, where's the vapor going if it's being shot out from the north and south poles? So yeah. So what it does is it actually energizes the what's called the ISM, the interstellar medium, which is basically the same kind of stuff as we've got between ourselves and the sun. Only we have the solar wind, which is, um, you know, blowing the, the medium out towards us um, in deep space. You've got a similar thing. You've got lots and lots of protons uh, and electrons too floating around in space, uh, as well as some dust and uh, probably um, you know uh, complete elements as well, and in fact molecules. There's kind of everything out there in the interstellar medium. So when you've got these jets, what they do is they tend to pile up the material of the interstellar medium itself, almost like um, you know if you can imagine yourself with a hosepipe. Um, uh, with a with a lot of dirt on a path or something, and you spray it along, and you're pushing all the dirt so it, it clumps up or it piles up against itself. When when gas does that, it tends to get shocked, and it will actually start emis emitting radiation. And that's probably one reason why we can see some of the pores of the cat's paw nebula because of that sort of effect. Ah, so that it's it's basically space hosing down the cement out front. <laughs> You've got it in one, yeah. yes. <laughs> no, it's interesting because, um, you know, you look at these things and you just, uh, you, you, you're, you're astonished by them, but you don't really understand how they, how they occur or why they look the way they look. And uh, being able to break it down like that is, uh, is very helpful. But um, it, it's, it's, again, one of those mysteries of the universe. But, but just reflecting back on something you said earlier um, we've reached a point now where we can do analysis of of certain things and, and look at the the breakdowns of, of what things are made of which gives us more and more clues as to how certain things are the way they are and and throw up questions about how we have water on earth or where yeah. it might have come from um, yeah. or okay. or to another degree cast doubt upon it depending on which way you want to look at it <laughs> so it's um it it's a it's just a fascinating science and it's um it's it's one that uh, as as you learn keeps throwing up more and more questions and we're discovering that even with our audience fred because that you know, every time we talk about something we get questions because you, it, it, i suppose that's one of the frustrations of astronomy you can't always know the whole answer no no we never can um i, I just underlining what you've said andrew i think the really interesting aspect of this as well is that yes we we kind of understand the physics of these things um you know in a theoretical way but just trying to imagine you know you with your head looking out the window of a spacecraft at this phenomenon taking place a, a stream of water vapor molecules hurtling at high speed towards a, a cloud of gas and, and shocking it into excitement it's really rather remarkable stuff mm.
That and how fast does that happen, though? I mean, it's it's uh, it, well. Often these things achieve what what we describe as relativistic velocities, which means not far short of the speed of light. Yeah. So. Um, I, yeah. Pretty rapid. <laughs> it's very rapid. That's right. I didn't mention, by the way, that this um, uh, this cat's paw nebula is quite a long way away. It's about five and a half thousand light years away. So we're not getting a close up view of it, but the the view we're getting is really quite remarkable. Indeed. It's definitely worth looking up if you want to uh, check it out on uh, on the internet. Lots of wonderful photos of it. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, a question from our audience. And uh, we say thank you to Abdul Aziz Musa from Uganda in East Africa for this one. Uh, Aziz, it's great to have you on board. Um, I didn't, I don't know if I've told you, Fred, but we've got a handy little device now so that uh, when we publish a new episode, I can watch a world map online and see exactly where our podcast is being downloaded in real time. And it's like the other day I, I uh, promoted it heavily on various um, social media websites and then I jumped straight to the map to see what was going on and instantly 13 downloads happening simultaneously around the world. It's really quite amazing. So it's really good to be getting into Uganda. We haven't had a question from Uganda before. So Aziz has this question. To the best of my knowledge, staying for a long time in space, microgravity, has side effects to the human body, including muscle deterioration, amongst other things. So are there any current viable solutions to address this? And if not, how do space exploration programs expect to deal with unforeseen long-term microgravity exposure side effects as to be expected in future human Mars exploration programs? And uh, before we start on his answer, this also brings into play another question we had recently, which we answered uh, on Facebook about um, artificial gravity and is uh, any development going on there because someone's going to think of that. So... <laughs> Maybe we can dovetail that in, but um, any current viable solutions, Fred? I, I think there really is only one, and it's the age-old, you know, centrifugal force mm. solution to try and mimic it. Um, uh, um, Aziz is quite right that uh, there are all kinds of pretty awful side effects uh, due to microgravity, um, and these are now really pretty well documented ever since the Mir space program, the uh, the, the the old. Um, in fact, it was Soviet, I think. No, it wasn't. No, it was Russian. It was after the after the end of the Soviet Union. Mir, uh, which was like a forerunner of the International Space Station. And then since 2000, we've had um, the, the International Space Station, which has been a great testbed for the effects of space on the human body. And so the two principal things are exactly, um, as Aziz says, muscle deterioration, but also you get the effects of bone deterioration as well, osteoporosis setting in so that there, there is a weakness of the bones that's created and you and i have spoken about other physiological effects it affects your sight uh, the microgravity is known to have some rather strange effects on the retina uh, which um, can may turn out to be long term rather than things that you can recover from mm. so the way this is dealt with in the space station is um, astronauts spend about three hours a day exercising i'm pretty sure it's at least as high a regime as that on treadmills and um, you know, uh, all, all kinds of uh, horrible torture devices that are designed to exercise their muscles to try and um, try and minimise the effect of 
the effect of this microgravity. Um, I guess in the last analysis, though, that really the only way, the only technology that we can visualize at the moment to deal with that is what was portrayed uh, by Stanley Kubrick back in 1968, I think it was, um, with uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that re revolving space station, where you basically have a big wheel in space and everybody lives on the outer edge of the wheel, uh, feeling its own artificial gravity. Um, that has never really been tested because you need some fairly serious engineering uh, to set that up and to get the rotation uh, at the right level. Um, there are there is talk of doing things like tethering two capsules together with a you know with a basically a rope or a or a cable um, to and then to set them spinning about their common center of gravity so that the the cable basically is what holds the two together um, but the, the pair are actually rotating and that would create artificial gravity. That's certainly something that was suggested a few years ago. But even to make that work, you actually need quite high levels of rotation, unless you're talking about very, you know, you, you know, very, very short pieces of uh, pieces of wire. Mm. And um, the whole thing turns out to be something that uh, is quite technolo technologically demanding. Um, that so okay so if you can fork out all the billions of dollars needed to make your spacecraft uh, give you artificial gravity that way that's great there might be other slightly wonky side effects due to the fact that your you know your view of the outside world is constantly changing yeah. Uh, yeah, well, if you were looking back at earth earth would appear to rotate yeah, because right. you would be perceiving it from uh, your yes, brain you your brain would perceive you as being not in motion so the earth would rotate in your vision that, that's quite right yes yeah. i think that was depicted actually in uh, 2001 uh, in the movie anyway that's um you know you're right you you, you almost the perhaps the most important sense we have in de determining our sense of direction and which way is up and things like that is the force of gravity it's mm. what um, defines our entire existence and so it would in space too if you could generate um, artificial gravity yes that will be your reference system um, well, and, and I, if i might just add i've interviewed a couple of astronauts uh, in my time and uh, it's interesting that uh, your perception of up can vary from individual to individual. Some of them, yes, that's right. some of them say to me, my feet pointing at the earth feels like up. Others say, no, I feel up with my head pointing towards earth. When they're right. the and yeah. it's just a strange thing, but everybody has a different perception of it. It's, it's bizarre. That, that's right, because it's a totally arbitrary thing. It's, yeah. it, it's pretty fixed here on earth. We know which way is up and which way is down. But as soon as you get rid of the gravitational pull of our planet, you're in um, well deep trouble uh, yeah. because you don't know which whether you're on your head or your feet. Um, just one extension to this is that one way that this doesn't help you is how to cope with the fact that Mars itself, if we go to Mars, only has one third of the gravity of our own planet. Yeah. So you're never going to be able to uh, simulate Earth gravity on Mars because you can't do it by centrifugal force you are basically stuck there. So, you uh, you know, we 
we will have to deal with the problem of, of how humans react to, to reduce gravity and the long-term ill effects of it. Uh, the same is true on the moon. It's a sixth of uh, Earth's gravity on the moon. So you've got a similar problem. It gives you great ability to hop along on oh, the surface. You can break the high jump record. Absolutely. Do all of that. But, um, you know, that's not what the, the issue is here. It's all about our well-being and yeah. how good we feel internally. Yeah. So, uh, and yet, the, the 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 concept of artificial gravity seems so very simple. And I suppose that's, that's why the question keeps coming up: Why is it so hard? And as you've said, the the engineering involved is uh, is is just not that simple. And uh, getting it to work uh, on a scale where you achieve one G for long haul travel is obviously hard to a achieve and b maintain. And then c if you do it and you land on a planet that hasn't got 1G, I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of other weird stuff that you've got to deal with. Maybe they could work it out so that you could time it so that when you got to Mars, you lost two-thirds of your capacity as a human being, and then when you got on the surface, everything would be normal. I think the um, I think NASA's medical division needs you, uh, <laughs> Andrew, with suggestions like that. Yeah, but I you'd think, never yeah. be able to come home. <laughs> They'd send you to Mars very quickly. <laughs> mm. So, yes, the, the people are thinking about it, but um, I don't think anything's actually uh, reached a point where they've got anything to test because it's all, you know, it's in the too hard basket somewhere in NASA or anywhere for that matter. And as you've already alluded to, there are potential long-term side effects um, and those, those are the things that... Uh, that they need to consider before they do a long haul trip. Uh, even then, these some of these side effects, as you men mentioned, the vision problems, uh, can differ from individual to individual. Now, yeah. there, there might be a whole bunch of astronauts that never would suffer the problem, but then one of them might go blind. It's just one of those things. Amongst many. maybe um, maybe there's some you know genetic research that might shed some light on that down the track. I'm sure that sort of thing is going on as we speak. Oh, no doubt about it, yeah. But uh, right now, uh, like anything to do with the um, well-being of humans, the answer is exercise. <laughs> Indeed it is, that's yeah. right. Which is what, well, it doesn't apply to the well-being of cats, apparently. <laughs> they don't need it. They're just naturally fit. They've got, yeah. all, they've got all the muscle tension and all the... You know, bits and pieces that keep them athletic. Except for that giant one I saw on the news the other day that's broken the world record for being a furball. But, um, yes, <laughs> we, we do treat them like people and they end up looking like us in some respect. Yes, yes. Mm. Anyway, Aziz, I hope we answered your question and thank you very much for sending it in. It is uh, a fascinating problem and one they are yet to solve. So um, uh, that one, I think, will take a, a while to... Uh, to, to resolve for long long haul travel. It won't stop us going. It just means people will have to suffer through the effects. Um, and we do encourage your questions. Uh, like I've been saying recently, we're getting so many, we won't be able to answer absolutely every single one of them, but we'll do our best to um, shovel them all into Fred's inbox and he can deal with them. And <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners too. I really appreciate it fact that um, you, you know you, you you are hungry for these answers yes and, and the questions are amazing sometimes they're just so and most of the time they're just so um, well thought out and intelligent and uh, you know uh, it's it's a it's a good thing to have that kind of um, you know 
uh, effort put in and, and gives gives us something really uh, juicy to think about. Fred, as always, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, to you too. And we'll speak again next week, I hope. I hope so too. Fred Watson, yeah. astronomer with us every week here on Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.